Welcome to the Motherhood Reimagined podcast, where we celebrate all paths to motherhood. I'm your host, Sarah Kowalski. Whether you're contemplating becoming a single mother, trying to be one, or already raising kids, this is the place for inspirational stories, expert advice, and informative guides celebrating those who didn't follow the rules as they share the heartache and joys of their paths. Be informed, be inspired, because you do not need to feel alone. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. I just wanted to make a couple announcements before we get started. So first of all, I'm looking for more podcast guests. So if you're interested in being interviewed and sharing your story, please head on over to my podcast landing page. That's at motherhoodreimagined.com forward slash podcast dash home forward slash. Or you can just go to my website, motherhoodreimagined.com and follow the menu to podcast and find the sign up form. If you have ideas for guests too, please shoot me an email at sarah at motherhoodreimagined.com and let me know who you think would be a great guest. The other announcement is that the Tribe Signature Level membership is now live. You can go to my website again and follow the links for membership and go ahead and sign up. Right now I have a Thinkers Triers group and an egg donation, embryo donation support group. In these groups, you get weekly access to me via video call with the rest of the group, an online community to talk about what's coming up for you, as well as tons of done-for-you research and reflection exercises and really everything you need to kind of help you navigate this choice and this process without feeling alone. So I hope you will join me. Now let's get started with our guest. Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined with Stacy. You may remember Stacy, we spoke in episode four about having an eight-year grueling journey to her two kids, one that she got via adoption and one via surrogacy. And so today we're going to sit down and talk about the adoption process and really dive in so that people can get some good tips about what it's like to adopt as a single mom. Welcome, Stacy. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. Glad to be here. Great. So just to remind listeners, can you give them a quick sort of overview of your journey to motherhood? Okay. So it took me eight years of battling infertility. I lost track of how many miscarriages I had. Mm. I think it was five. And then I had a, an emergency hysterectomy after the last miscarriage. And then I had a failed adoption and I had a failed surrogacy. And then finally, I was blessed with a successful adoption. Wow. That's quite an amazing story. So um, so can you dive in telling us about the adoption process and sure. sort of what happened with the failed adoption and I guess what you learned going forward for the second one? Yeah. So, you know, I think that's the most important thing that I can share is what what I learned through doing things the wrong way. (laughs) So the failed adoption, I guess you could say one red flag was that we matched really early in her pregnancy. I believe she was only four months along when we matched. It was a sort of friend of a friend of a friend thing. I had created, and I do recommend this, I had created a Facebook page for seeking an adoption where I introduced myself and 
I posted pictures of my life and an introduction to myself. And I asked everyone that I knew to share it, share the page. I really leveraged social media to, to connect with both the failed adoption and the successful adoption. So in my case, it was a really wonderful tool to use to basically create what a lot of agencies, you can sometimes pay agencies tens of thousands of dollars to create these sort of books for you that they hand to birth mothers. And I decided, I mean, I didn't decide I couldn't afford them. So I created my own and it, it included everything, including, you know, family, extended family, my home, my hobbies, my beliefs, just anything that I thought might reach out and connect with a birth mom that would want to choose me. Mm. So that was number one. So can I have you back up a little bit? Can you maybe give the listeners like a bit of an overview of the different types of adoption? I know you already alluded to using an agency or sort of the process you went through, what, how would you characterize that? And why, I guess, what were the reasons you chose that method? Okay. So I can tell you what I know, which is probably not the definitive total picture, but there are private, private domestic adoptions that can go either through agency or you can match personally. Matching is when a birth mother chooses an adoptive family to place their baby with. So that's the first step in the process is when you match. And that's when you, when a birth mother is pregnant and deciding that she wants to place her baby for adoption, she will either reach out to agencies, reach out to lawyer. There's a few different paths she can go. She can, you know, ask people she knows. There's lots of different ways that they can go about it. And when they finally sort of figure out the path they're going to use, they start often looking through stacks of books and and pamphlets and leaflets of families some some agencies will have you know a catalog online of families that birth moms can look through so if if they go through an agency it's easier for them in a lot of ways but of course on the adoptive parent side it's a lot more money to go through an agency agencies can charge Anywhere from the lowest I've seen is about $8,000 and the highest I've seen is more like $30,000. So it can really vary depending on the level of services that the agency provides and the level. And I, I believe a more important factor than that is how many birth moms the agency has access to because it can, it's, it can feel like you're waiting to be chosen for a very long time. You can wait for a very long time to be chosen. And there are statistics, for example, about what is most preferable to a birth mom who is choosing, you know, for example, a gay male couple is the highest preference. <laughs> they, they get chosen the most frequently. Then below them are heterosexual couple. And then below that, I believe, is lesbian couples. And below that is single mothers, which is the category I fall into. So mm. from a statistical standpoint, single mothers are the bottom of the you know <laughs> food uh-huh. chain. And so it is harder sometimes to be chosen. And, it, and so that's why it can sometimes be really important to, to think about unconventional paths, to, to open yourself up to other forms of adoption. And what I mean by that is considering adopting a child that was born drug addicted, drug exposed, having a medical disability or a medically fragile child. There's also adopting through social services like Fast Adopt. 
So there's a lot, a lot of different paths that you can go down as far as not just whether you go through an agency, whether you do it independently, but also whether you decide you want to adopt an infant or if you want to adopt a baby or a child. And each one of those decisions will affect how, like the statistics on how many children are available to you. Mm, interesting. So is the process that you use then you put up your own like profile and sort of sought out birth mothers on your own. And then did you, after that, work with an attorney to sort of finalize this agreement that you already sort of brokered on your own or <laughs> work through an attorney? Or can you say a little bit, I guess, about the adoption attorney process and then what how that differs from what you did? Yes. So it gets complicated. So let me, there is a part of the process which you cannot do independently. The home study process is regulated by the state and you have to go through the state. You have to either go through an agency or you have to pay what's called an adoption service provider. There's basically no way around that. And it's about, a, in California, it's a 5, 000, about a $5,000 regulated fee to finish a home study. And the home study process, like I said, you have to either go through an agency. I went through an agency. So the funny thing is I didn't use an agency to adopt, but I had to go to an agency to do the home study. Mm, so okay. I brought I brought the, the birth mom with me and approached the agency and said, I already have a match, but I need you to facilitate the home study. So the home study process is it's a little bit of a deceptive terminology because by home study, you would assume that the most important aspect is them inspecting your home. And that's not the case. It's actually a process of vetting you as a parent and as a person. It, it requires you to meet with you know, licensed therapists several times and deep dive into your sort of psychological background and your childhood history and your familial structure. And you also have to provide financial records and work work records, you know, rental or homeowner records. You have to really provide a whole sort of dossier on yourself that has to be vetted. You have to do fingerprinting. You have to take CPR class. If you have an animal in the home, the animal has to be assessed for temperament, at least minded. I don't know if every home study requires that, but minded. So these are all processes and they do take some time. So when I first matched with the first birth mom, the one that didn't work out, and I approached the agency, I had to do an expedited home study because I had like not as much time. So I was jumping through a lot of hoops mm -hmm. in a very aggressive timeline. And I don't recommend that because it's very stressful. So if you are serious about adoption, getting a home study is the first step. Once you get a home study, it's good for 18 months and then you can renew it at 18 month mark and it's pretty easy to renew it. It's a lot easier than the first time around. So staying ready for a placement is probably one of the best things that you can do to put yourself in a position to be chosen. And sometimes last minute placements happen. And if you don't have that home study, you can't take it. Mm, okay. And so you referenced that you can either go to an agency or hire sort of like a private, almost like contractor who's licensed to do home studies. Yeah. So, well, mostly the agencies do the first part of the home study, mm -hmm. it's, but then there's a second part, which is, let me see if I can remember what it's called. I believe it's called, I want to say it's post-placement. Okay. Let me, there's several parts. Mm -hmm. There's the original home study 
And then there's this in-between part that I wish I could remember the name of, but I know that the, the type of person that provides the service is an adoption service provider. And they are licensed by the state and you have, and they are like in short supply. I had to call many adoption service providers to find one that was available in my time frame because I was in such a rush. And they, you pay them a separate amount from the home study and they run it, they do a sort of additional dossier. It's, it's kind of funny because what ends up happening is you end up giving the same information about five times. Mm. You know, you end up doing it when you first start the process, when you get the placement, and then there's a whole finalization process, which happens after you already have the baby. And that is a whole separate set of documents and hoops you have to jump through. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. It feels a little bit like you're being put through the ringer and it's easy to get a little disgruntled about the process because you know that there are people out there that are having children left and right without anybody vetting them, Mm. you know, so it feels a little bit like you're being, you know, a little unfairly scrutinized, Yeah, but you know, it is what it is. So yeah. So there's the adoption service provider and they're the ones that gather all of the various pieces of the puzzle and submit it to the county or the state, depending on how things are regulated in your area. They submit it to the authorities and that makes it legal for you to take home the baby. So I had to have that process completed before the baby was born. Okay. Okay. Wow. And are there any tips you would give to single moms in particular who are approaching like the home study part of it? Well, yeah. So a few things. Consider fast adopt, which is a wonderful path to take. And if you do fast adopt, the home study is paid for by the county, but it is not transferable to a private adoption. So some people go that route thinking they can convince somebody to release their home study mm-hmm. for a private adoption and it doesn't work. You have to do a separate one for private. But the first thing I would recommend is to consider fast adopt because if you have a budget problem, you know, if, if there's limited funds, that's a way to go where it would be less, much less expensive. In any case, the most important things to think about before you go into a home study are, are your financials in order? Is your home stable? If you have, so many of us have psychiatric or, you know, psychiatric diagnoses these days, you know, Mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, that doesn't preclude you from adopting, but you do have to establish that you're stable and that you're under the care of doctors. So if you have a history of taking an antidepressant, you're going to want to get a good solid documentation that you're stable, you know, just a good work history. If you, if you don't have a job, you probably want to have a job before you start the work study, the home study process, just making sure that basically all of your ducks are in a row, but also not letting it intimidate you because I have heard many people say to me, I don't, you know, that they didn't feel that they would qualify for various reasons, because they had a medical condition, because they had depression in their history, because they didn't make enough money. And none of those things preclude you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're unemployed, you're probably not going to pass until you have a job. But, you know, you don't have to make a ton of money. You don't have to own your own home. I don't own my own home. You don't have to, you know, have lived there for 500 years. You know, you just have to prove that you're in a position to be a stable parent. Mm -hmm. And was there anything that you felt like you were asked that was 
specific to being a single mom or things that you had to overcome being a single mom? Yes. So I, again, once you file the paperwork with the adoption service provider, the next step is dealing with the finalization social worker. And my finalization social worker, actually, she extended my finalization window an extra six months because she, and because she doubted my ability to be a single mother to two children. Wow. And she actually made me provide documentation that I had a live-in helper, which I felt very wrong. I I felt that that was really unfair of her. Mm -hmm. And I, and it, it definitely rubbed me all kinds of wrong ways. But the thing is with the finalization workers, you kind of have to just stay on their good side, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and smile and do what they say. So even though I really, to be honest, felt that that was really wrong of her. Yeah. I did feel that she had a bias against me because I was single. Did she stop the adoption from finalizing? No, but I did feel very edgy and extra worried for a while there. Wow. And that was after your child was in your home. So this is after you take the baby home, the finalization. Okay. Yes. Yes. So there's a period of time. So after the baby is placed with you, there's a window of time where the birth mom can change her mind. And because we did, because I had learned my, some lessons from the first time, I made sure that the time frame where she could change her mind was minimized as much as possible. So there are ways that you can do that. You can hire a lawyer to give her, to provide her with legal advice. And if you do that process, which costs about $900, I'm giving the numbers to make sure people know. If you do that process, then you can shrink the window from 30 days to three days. Mm. And to me, that was really important because I had been hurt before and I was so afraid. And I explained this to, to the birth mom and she was willing to do this to give me some reassurance and peace of mind. So that's the first step is the termination of parental rights. The second step is finalization, and that can take anywhere from six months to several years. So in my case, it took about nine months. It should have only taken, you know, three or four months, but like I said, she dragged it out for six extra months. And then the only other thing that would have prevented finalization was if my daughter had qualified for post-placement subsidies, and that is if she had a medical condition that qualified her for her to be covered for services for her entire childhood, which there, if you have a medically fragile child or if a child has severe enough, you know, consequences from being born addicted, then some, then you can qualify for that. And then what that entails is that they get services, Medicare, and you get a a stipend, a monthly stipend for their whole childhood. But the, the, the downside of that is that it can, it can delay finalization for a couple of years. Mm, Okay. So going back to, um, so the beginning of the process, I guess, can you go over, take us back to your first adopt, the first hopeful adoption and what happened and what went wrong and some of those lessons? Okay. So as I said, I posted my page and I asked everyone to share it. About six months after I posted it, I, you know, sort of heard a friend through a friend of a friend that there was this woman living in another state who was pregnant and seeking to place her baby. We chatted a few times on the phone and she declared that she was choosing me and I was ecstatic. I thought that, you know, my, my, my prayers had been answered. She was still a bit early in her pregnancy and 
often when you're adopting, part of the process is supporting the birth mom or birth family through the pregnancy. So that can mean sending money for housing and food and doctor visits or anything that they might need. So I was in a situation where we were matched early. So I was sending them money for rent and food every month for several months before I knew that there was going to be a problem. So I had been supporting the birth parents for months. And it's very important when you're doing that, that you're very careful about exactly what you're giving them money for. Because there are things you're legally allowed to give them money for and things you are not allowed to legally give them money for. And if you give them money for things that are not allowed, it can nullify the adoption. Mm. And I didn't know that. And this couple was a little bit shameless in extorting money from me. First, it was, you know, this crisis and that crisis. And, you know, they were staying in a weekly hotel and I was, you know, I was wiring them money, like basically weekly. And then there came a point where they were so destitute, they actually took a bus and came and stayed with me. Oh, wow. Which was something I do not recommend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cannot state this strongly enough because I was so desperate. And I believe that what sometimes when you're just so desperate to be a mom, there are predators out there that can see that and they can exploit it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's what this couple was doing. They came and stayed with me for another, I think, two months. And they were trying to get me to buy them a car. They were trying to get me to pay off his back child support for other children. I mean, they were just trying every trick in the book to get money out of me. And I had, I got to the point where I was just broke. I was like out of money to give them. And they started threatening that they were going to leave. And because I had been through an agency for the home study, I called the agency and asked them to intervene and manage this relationship. And this is one thing where I believe agencies are a wonderful blessing because they have experience with recognizing red flags. They have experience with managing the relationship, intervening in between the two parties. And you need that when you're new and you're just so eager to have a baby. Uh, if, If people don't have scruples, they can really take you for a long ride. Mm -hmm. So I wish that I had let the agency be more involved earlier. I wish I had said no earlier. I was so afraid that -hmm. they were going to change their minds that I wouldn't say no to them. And what I realize now is that if you're going to change, if if a birth parent is going to change their mind, saying no is not going to be the reason. Mm -hmm. And so like, and I learned that the hard way. So that's my lesson is, you know, if they're, if they choose you for the right reasons, you telling them you can't give them any more money, it's not going to, it's not going to pull the plug on the adoption. Mm -hmm. If they're choosing you for the wrong reasons, they're going to find a reason to pull the plug. Right. And did you guys have any sort of agreement at this point or was it sort of just a, like a handshake agreement or how did that part of it work? Oh no. When, when, when they came out, so when I involved the, the agency for the home study, part of that process is they do an intake with the birth family and they did an intake with the birth family. They started, you know, the legal process of matching. So it wasn't just a handshake agreement. It was 
Like it was, it was on the books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, it was, you know, we were following the formal process, but the laws are written in a way to protect birth parents from exploitation and coercion. And that, and that's kind of a tangent, but because for so many years, adoption, the adoption was an industry that was sort of built on exploiting and coercing birth moms. Mm -hmm. So they passed laws that protect birth moms. And I'm glad that they have those laws, but now it's gone the other way and it's a little lopsided. And now adoptive parents are not protected the same way or potential adoptive parents. So there was nothing after I had been supporting this family for months and they had, you know, done intake and they had told me to get a home study and they had, you know, taken me through all of these processes. There was absolutely nothing that bound them to follow through. Mm. And in fact, when they finally bailed out, they bailed out three days before the baby was born. <gasps> oh my God. And they, they drove my car <laughs> to the bus station and left the keys in the car, called the adoption agency, said, let her know we're backed out. Oh my God. And the agency called me and said, we have bad news for you. Mm. And they didn't even tell me directly. And the agency actually, this is how weird and lopsided some of these laws are. The agency actually tried to get me to pay for their tickets home. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I actually declined whether 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 you want to, you know, there are going to be people out there who think that was wrong of me to decline, but I didn't think it was wrong of me to decline. And actually, once they went back to their home state, several family members of theirs reached out to me and told me that they jokingly referred to it as their California vacation. They never intended to place the baby with me. Mm. I also found out that she had been smoking and drinking and she had not told me. So they were just on, on so many levels, they were just very dishonest people. And that happens. I mean, mm-hmm. it hap- you, you read the stories, it happens to lots of people. And if I'm really honest with myself, there were definitely red flags and that's the, that's the really important takeaway is that when you so desperately want to be a mom, you overlook so many things that you know better than to overlook. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the right match finally came along, I told her right up front, I really want this adoption to go through, but I'm out of money. I can't give you a cent. I can pay for the legal fees. I can pay for the home study update, but I can't give you a penny. And she said, I don't want a penny. I just want a good home for my child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the right, you know, that was the indicator that she was in it for the right, you know, she was in it for the right motivations. Right. That makes sense. Wow. A very different picture. And so do you think that like agencies or adoption attorneys have like an ability to screen adoptive parents more? Do you think like, is it less likely to fall through if you go that route rather than personally matching? Or do you think it's sort of across the board? I I would like to say that I think that agencies probably do a slightly better job of it, but I happen to know of many situations that are just like I'm describing that happened to me that happened when they were matched through agencies and through personal lawyers. So I think that there are going to be people out there that are going to take advantage. And I think that going through an agency does have allow you some level of protection, but I think it might also provide people a lot of an illusion of protection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you speak a little bit to, you, you mentioned the fee for using like an agency from the outset. 
do you have a sense of what the like what the price is if you use if you were to use an adoption attorney versus the like how you did it? Well, I reached out to an adoption attorney when I was still trying to find, you know, a match. And because I had a couple of friends go through an attorney and they got matched really quickly and they were single. And so I thought, well, I need to investigate those, you know. But usually adoption attorneys are even more expensive than agencies because they really expedite the process. Mm -hmm. And they also tend to have, they, I don't know how they do it, but they somehow manage to cultivate a lot of connections with birth moms. So, they, so the attorneys that do this for a living, they basically go out and, and, and find the birth moms. So, you know, they, they kind of become more than just the, the attorney. They become the middleman, the broker, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I reached out to an attorney, the one that I reached out to charged about 35000 Okay. For the process. And, and, you know, it's not a whole lot more than what most, what a lot of the agencies were charging. Yeah, it was, it was a solid, probably 10,000 more than the agency was charging. So, you know, mm -hmm. that was a pretty big amount, but if you're very eager and you have the means and you want the process to be as simple as possible, I mean, that's a way to go for sure. Mm -hmm. And then do you mind speaking to how much aside from, well, how much it cost you to do your adoption? Yeah. So the one that actually came, so I, it's important that I separate the mm -hmm. one that didn't happen from right. the one that did happen. So from beginning to end, if you count all of the legal fees, the home studies, the adoption service provider, I would say, I would say probably about, I would say about $10,000. Okay. Okay. So that's good. So people know that there is sort of this sort of, I want to call it sort of semi DIY. It's like you're doing the matching, but then you're yeah. roping in yeah. someone else to help you with the legal contract as well as the home study aspects of it and brokering the relationship. Yeah. And also I should say that that money doesn't happen all at once. It happens at different stages uh, along the process. And that was kind of important to me because I didn't know if adoption was going to come through, like was going to be the way that I became a mom. And so it was, it was kind of hard to like, you know, pony up this, this massive chunk of money up front for what felt like a really big leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And so when you do it the DIY way, you know, the big chunk is like the home study up front, but, but all the other chunks of money happen at various points along the journey. So the first is the home study, then the adoption service provider and the, the lawyer that counsels the birth mom, if you want to expedite that process. And then there's the lawyer that actually goes to the court and appears in front of the judge to do the finalization. And so, so that's, the money is shelled out over a, quite a long span of time rather than all up front. Cool. Okay. That's great to know. So you made some mention about, uh, you know, adopting a child who's been drug exposed or alcohol exposed or not. How does that work? Can you sort of screen birth mothers for that? And would you say it's more expensive if you're trying to get a baby that hasn't been exposed? I believe, so when you, when you go through an agency, you do fill out a checklist of situations you're, you're open to. And they break it down, you know, are you, are you open to a baby who's been meth exposed? Are you open to a baby that's been opiate exposed? You know, they, they have the whole gamut. Are you open to a baby that has a disability? Are you open to a baby that has, you know, is medically fragile? 
are you open to a baby of color? Yes. Believe it or not, they ask you that. Are you, you know, they, they really, they ask you every detail you can imagine. And, and it's a moment for you. It's, it's a moment of truth for you to really confront yourself about what you are prepared for. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you may find yourself answering those questions in a way that differs from how you believe, that differ from how you, what you would have expected of yourself. For example, I did not check the box for having a disability. And that reasoning was because I was going into this as a single mother and I was afraid that a disability was more than I could handle. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, I think that that was probably incorrect on my part. But, you know, we all have to, you know, we have to be realistic with ourselves about what we're willing to take on because you're committing for a lifetime to this person Mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that you're up to the task and that you're, you know, prepared. So I personally checked no for a few boxes and yes for a few boxes. And the agency is very clear with you that the more boxes you say no to, the longer it's going to take for you to be matched because a significant portion of the babies that are placed for adoption fall into one of those categories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not necessarily a matter of whether you'll spend more money. It's a matter of how long it will take you to be matched. Mm -hmm. Um, There are agencies that would probably specialize in perfect, pretty babies, (laughs) (laughs) but they won't necessarily admit that, you know, because you know, it's, it's not, it's uncouth. Mm -hmm, (laughs) I mm -hmm. I don't think that they would admit that explicitly, but I definitely got the feeling, for example, when I was exploring agencies, I explored a wonderful agency that is in East Bay and Berkeley, I think called Pact Adopt. And they specialize in babies of color and they have a sliding scale for their fees and they are very pro LGBT, you know, adopt to single parent that, you know, place with single parents and help, you know, LGBT parents. And so they're a really, really wonderful agency in East Bay that feels like they're filling the void for, uh, you know, a lot of other agencies really catered to the rich and well, the white and the perfect and, you know, in all these ways. And so this agency feels like they're really open for everybody. And I really love that about them. In the end, I didn't use them, but the reason I didn't use them is because they told me that the wait would be four years. And I, I just, I just, that was such a daunting prospect to me that I just, you know, I just didn't go in that direction because I was just so daunted by that number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, undoubtedly that I can understand that. (laughs) Okay. And then when you put up your own profile, did you specify any of these, any of the boxes that you would have ticked at an agency or you just sort of talked to whoever matched with you and made a choice based on who contacted you? So I didn't specify anything about, you know, the child I was seeking. I I was completely open on my adoption page. And really in my heart, I was mostly open, but I was like a little bit wary of certain things, you know, but I was at that point, I had educated myself on some of the things that I had previously held biases about. So I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. I have a friend who's an adoption attorney and I reached out to her privately. I also reached out to a council that I can't remember the name of now, but there's actually a council in California that keeps track of epidemiology statistics on exposure to different drugs and how they manifest over time in children. And, you know, it's, it's actually amazing. So I did a lot of research on this and I came to find out that a lot of babies that are privately placed through agencies have had drug exposure, it's up to the birth mom to self-disclose. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that means that if they don't feel comfortable, if they don't want to self-disclose, if they're embarrassed, 
if any of the reasons that you can imagine why somebody would lie about using drugs mm-hmm. or alcohol, if they decide to lie, that's the, that's the extent of the due diligence that's done. Mm-hmm. Self-disclosure. Okay. So it's important to know that for two reasons. One is, well, it's probably for many more than two, but the two that I can think of are one that when you go into an adoption, it's in a lot of ways, a a lot like being pregnant and the fact that you don't know, you know, you don't know how your baby is going to be born. Is your baby going to be healthy? Is your baby going to have an illness? Is your baby going to have a disability? Like you don't know the answers to these questions, but when you have a child of your own body, you are in, you're all in, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? But somehow people have this weird trepidation about it adoption that they're going to get like, I don't know, a defective baby. I'm not quite sure what the logic is, but in the same way, you can have the illusion that you're having a perfectly healthy child and not know that that child has been exposed Mm -hmm. or, you know, like, so you don't know what you're getting in the same way that you don't know what you're getting when you're pregnant. So there is, there is a level of unknown that makes people really uncomfortable, but they, but you need to accept that in the same way that you accept any child that, you know, that you would birth. So if you check the boxes, if you check no on all the boxes, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a baby that doesn't have some of those boxes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because some things are just outside of your control right. and, and the, and there's an illusion. And if you go through an agency, you will have potentially more of an illusion that, that those boxes are, you know, that the baby has never been exposed to this, that, and the other, but you don't really know that it's, it's, a, so what I'm getting at is you have a false sense of security mm-hmm. and it's important not to have a false sense of security, but the, the flip side of that, which is the second point I wanted to make is that much on the same way that any child you give birth to that might have a disability, might have an illness, would still be the absolute love of your life and joy of your life. Hmm. So is the adopted baby that might have exposure or might have a disability. They're going to be the loves of your life. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be no part of you that regrets it or you know, thinks that you made a mistake or, or has any qualifying. You know, you're going to love this child because it's your child. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to cross the bridge when, it, when you get to it. You mm-hmm. know? So I think that people get you know, unnecessarily caught up in, you know, these check, checking these boxes. But I think in the end that, you know, you're going to get the baby that's perfect for you. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I think most, you know, becoming a mother in general is sort of a a leap of faith and a letting go of control. But certainly for those of us who had to try really hard, it's even, you know, it's, it's testing that aspect of you over and over and over again. It sounds like. Yeah. And it is, it's really, it's really easy to think that, to go through an agency and you and you check all check no on all the boxes and you know and you're going to hold out for you know a, you know perfectly gestated baby mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that does not guarantee anything right and then i think you were about to say there was an organization that has tracked like epidemiology of kids yes i wish i could remember the name of it something council there's a phone number and I can look, I can try to find it and I can, you can post it along, mm-hmm. you know, post the link. But I was actually able to get a person on the phone and ask them one by one, the different names of the drugs and ask them for information about, you know, the, the long-term prognosis for each drug. And, you know, it was, it was really reassuring. Oh, good. Okay. 
All right. That's good to know. So basically that the sum total of it is that there's many drugs that kid babies are exposed to that do not have long-term health impacts for kids. Yeah. There some, you know, as you know, we have an opioid epidemic in this country mm-hmm. right now. And so there's a lot of babies being born addicted to opioids. It can mean that they have a little bit of a rough start. It can sometimes mean that they need some extra services and support often they catch up and they're they're wonderful and you know typical you know by kindergarten wow okay that's really good to know you also mentioned that you now have an open adoption relationship with the birth mother of your child can you talk a little bit about how you navigated that relationship, how you set it up before the birth and how it's been going now? Yes. So I want to start by telling a story that was a really watershed moment for me. It was before I was a mom. I had gone to see a movie with a friend and she was an adoptive mom. And we were sitting in my car and I was, you know, she was, you know, sort of giving me the there, there speech about your time to be a mother will come soon, you know. And we were talking about adoption as an option. And I said, well, if I did adoption, I'd want to do international because I want to make sure that I don't feel, you know, like any, like, I I don't remember how I phrased it, but basically the general gist of it was, I didn't want to feel threatened Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the idea of a birth family being, you know, domestic. Like, you know, I didn't want to have to contend with the birth family. I just wanted my, my child to be my child out and out, you know. And so I thought international adoption would be the best way to do that. And she stopped me because she, she of course, had, um, had adopted domestically and said, well, hold on a second. So what you're saying is to protect your feelings, you want to cut your child off from any records or information about their original identity, about their extended family, about their medical history. You know, there's going to come a day where they're going to ask questions that you will not be able to answer. And you will, you will, you will have to tell them that the reason that you can't answer their questions is because you were afraid of your own feelings. Mm. And that, of course, she said it in a much better way than that. But my point (laughs) is that was huge and eye-opening for me because I was so busy thinking about how I would feel. Mm -hmm. I was forgetting that this is a person that's going to grow up and have questions. This is a person that might need to close the, you know, the gaps and cultivate their full identity that doesn't just include me. It includes where they came from. And is that true that are all international adoptions, it's the children are sort of cut off from their birth parents and not able to find them? Well, it's not always true, but often with international adoptions, records are really fuzzy. Often international adoptions happen through orphanages. Mm-hmm. And so the, so basically there are babies that are surrendered by families and then they don't always keep records on who surrendered them. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I have several friends who have adopted internationally and they don't even know the original birthday of their child. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they ha- there are a lot of gaps in the information that they have. And, you know, in most cases, I would say that I've known of, there have been little to no information. Right. Right. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. And I mean, I also have, I also know some adult adoptees who have gone to the country they were adopted from and and ferreted out records. But you know, mm. that's you know expensive proposition. You know, and I realized from my own childhood because I didn't have a relationship with my mother growing up. I realized how important it had been to me to to have questions answered about her. And you can't just you know erase 
part of somebody's story because mm-hmm. you're not comfortable with it. Right. It's their story and it's part of who they are and what makes them who they are. And you, I wanted to embrace her whole story. So I made the decision that I was going to have, if at all possible, an open adoption. Obviously, open adoption, there's it's sort of a spectrum because it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's everything from having information about birth parents with the understanding that they might be contacted someday. To any anything from that end of the spectrum to, you know, regular involvement, you know, regular contact, sending, you know, periodic updates, you know, keeping keeping connected on Facebook, inviting to special occasions, you know, it can run the gamut through all that. For and it also depends on the willingness of the birth parents, you know, mm-hmm. how how much they want to be involved. So it's a it's a complicated thing to navigate because once you decide that you want to have an open adoption and the birth parents also agree to that it's it's not like a one and done situation you have to navigate that over and over and over again mm-hmm. so and i think it's the gift you can give the biggest gift you can give your child because i i believe that my daughter is going to feel more whole as a person growing up knowing her whole story from the beginning but it's not easy. (laughs) We just had my daughter's fifth birthday party and I invited the birth parents to attend and they brought their daughter who is my daughter's full bio sibling. And she's about a year and a half older than my daughter. So she understands a lot more about what's going on than my daughter does. And it was really wonderful for them to be there and also scary. I'm a little bit sad to say that I felt more threatened than I would have liked to have felt, Mm -hmm. more possessive of my daughter than I would have liked to have felt. But I know that it was the right thing to do. And so I was willing to take that hit. And I also know that they're really, really wonderful people. And I'm really glad to know them. And I'm, I'm glad that I can tell my daughter when she's older, I can speak about her birth parents with love. And that's something that is a really big gift for her. Mm-hmm. But also after they left, there's a big blowback. Um, there's a bit of emotional fallout, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it was the birthday party was on Saturday and we're now on Tuesday. So we're still dealing with a little bit of emotional fallout. Yeah. I can imagine for both of you, I would expect. Yeah. And by the way, so back to the point of like, it's not a one and done is like every step along the journey. Like I have to ask myself, like, how involved do I want them? Do I want them to visit yearly? Do I want them to visit more than once a year? You know, we're, we're connected on Facebook and we chat, me and the birth mom chat on a regular basis on Facebook. And, and she gets to see all the pictures of the kids and she comments on them and everything. But as far as physical presence, how often do I want them to visit? Now that this event has me rethinking how often I want to invite them. Mm-hmm. So like, it's something that you kind of have to play by ear and, you know, you might have to adjust as you discover different feelings and different stages of the process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also the risk that they don't, they might not be as sensitive to boundaries. You know, for example, like if you invite them to visit once, are they going to try to, you know, are they going to push those boundaries and 
So I'm really lucky that my birth, my daughter's birth parents are extremely sensitive to boundaries. They've never imposed themselves or overstepped. And I'm really grateful for that. But it could be a nightmare if they did. You know, it could be like a situation where I have to stand up to them and say, no, I'm sorry, this is a boundary. And I risk, you know, alienating them, you know, from future contact. So it, it's a delicate balance. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So did you guys, when you were matching, have a conversation about it being open and sort of share sort of your vision of what open might look like? And then now you're sort of, it's playing out in real life or did you, how, how did you first come to some sort of agreement about what was going to happen going forward? Well, we definitely talked about it being open. I I told her that I would stay in touch with her and give her updates and that we could periodically, you know, greet, you know, be together in person. And she was thrilled by that, but didn't believe me that I would follow through. So as time has gone on and she's seen that I'm committed to that, she has expressed how in- incredibly grateful she is. Because the one thing that's important to mention is that to my best knowledge, you can't enforce these agreements once the adoption is finalized. Like any agreement you have is totally subject to the discretion of the adoptive parents. And I believe a lot of adoptive parents make promises they have no intention of keeping. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of birth parents are very, you know, skeptical of promises. Mm-hmm. And that's because legally she becomes your child. And so if you decided to like renege, yeah. Visitation rights, she has no legal standing. Is exactly. That what you okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to link in the show notes. There was a, I think it's a modern love column that had a beautiful, heart wrenching account from a birth mother who is in regular contact with her biological child. Is that the correct? terminology? Yeah. Like actually I, I feel like I've been saying birth parent, birth child throughout this whole conversation, but the truth is I kind of favor biological, mm-hmm. but you know, everyone has a slightly different way, you know, sort of terminology. I don't know that there's, I think among the more enlightened adoption community, I think biological parent, biological child is the sort of preferred term, but mm-hmm. you know, I think people use all kinds of terms. I've even, you know, I've heard people use first mom mm. and I like, like that a lot, but for me, biological. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's it's a tough call, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I think probably wrapping up. Can you give sort of your top tips? I guess we kind of touched on them here and there, but I guess if you were going to advise a single mom who's considering adoption, sort of what are the main things she should think about, and sort of the the major pitfalls, as in sort of like summary. <laughs> Is that too uh, difficult of a question? Well, it's just that I I think I've been a little bit all over the place in this conversation. Okay. I hope I. I haven't been too all over the place, but I think that my top takeaways are probably number one, have faith. It will happen because I think the fear that it won't happen and the panic and the desperation that we feel when we're trying so hard to become mothers, I think that it not only does it cloud our judgment when we're going into these very delicate you know, situations, but also it, it, it takes away from the time that we have. There's no point in being miserable until you're a mom. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot of time lived that you are missing out on because you're focusing on the, the, you know, the worst case scenario and the what will happen and the what won't happen. And I, I just, I, one of the big takeaways I learned is that I spent a lot of time pursuing motherhood 
And I, I missed out on a lot of time that I could have been living while I was waiting mm-hmm. because I was, I didn't have any faith that it would happen. Right. And rightfully so. I right. had a lot of bad right. things happen, but yes. you know, but nonetheless, I feel like the, the right approach to take is not if, but when, and if you can get to that place, then I believe that you'll be not only happier in the meantime, but probably make more judicious decisions along the way. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a phrase that I love and use a lot too with people. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So the next takeaway is just to be open because I really believe that when you're open, you're going to be so glad that you were. Mm-hmm. And open to what your baby is gonna, you know, who your child is gonna be, and not even. And I and I corrected myself because baby is not the correct. Some people might be okay adopting a four year old, a five year old, a six year old, and that can still be an amazing journey. Mm-hmm. And so, just being open to your child being, you know, not having any preconceived notions about who that child is gonna be, mm-hmm. and knowing that the right child is gonna come to you. The next thing is if you if you have if you if you're Tackles go up. If you feel a red flag, listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. Don't torture yourself with the what ifs. Just listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. That sounds like very good advice. <laughs> what do you mean by torture yourself with what, the what ifs? Like, what if this birth parent this birth parent walks away? Yeah, uh-huh. I, I I cannot tell you. I you know because I was you know trying for eight years and because I've been very involved in the community, I have known so many adoptive moms who just tortured themselves with the what ifs. Mm-hmm. Just having the strongest feeling that something is not right and just being so afraid to let go of that potential baby. And almost every time what I've seen is that they that their gut was proven right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't mean fear. There's a difference between fear and gut, but you know. If there's if there's something doesn't add up, if there's a red flag, if somebody's trying to, you know, milk you for money, if you know, just listen to your gut mm-hmm. and don't be afraid because the like I said, you know, when the right match came along for me, I didn't have a penny left to give her. And she didn't want a penny from me. Mm-hmm. And then I guess agencies are great. If you can afford an agency, please just go through an agency. <laughs> but if you can't afford an agency, be informed and do the best you can to follow all of the proper steps, you know, to make sure that you're doing things right and that you're protecting yourself, but don't have the illusion if you do go, do go through an agency that you're guaranteed. Okay. That's, I think that's very good advice as well. Yes. I guess that's it. I, I, on the other side, you know, I've got this five-year-old and she's the absolute love of my life. And I cannot imagine my life without her and who would have known, you know, so just knowing that there's a, there's another side to Mm -hmm. get to, you'll get to the other side of this and and you'll, you'll be glad you did. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. I know I feel like we could do five more episodes on many (laughs) of these topics, but I think that's a wonderful amount of information and we'll, I'll try and find some resources. If you have any resources on agencies or adoptive attorneys that, you know, specialize in single moms or LGBTQ, that would be wonderful. We can include those and maybe we can find some of the resources you talked about and put those in the show notes as well. In fact, yes. In fact, I know a a single mother by choice who's an adoptive mom, who's a very, very active adoptive adoption attorney. Oh, wonderful. And I I would love to, you know, point you to her as as a link in this, but also probably to interview her. She'd probably be great for that. Oh, great. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stacey. 
And we will pick up another, yet another episode on surrogacy and that whole process and everything you learned on that. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks as well. And I really appreciate your openness and willing to share and and your wisdom in this process. It's my pleasure. I hope that it helps someone. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Thank you. If you liked today's episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher to subscribe and leave a review. I so appreciate your support to spread the word about this project. If you'd like to hear more about my journey, please read my memoir, Motherhood Reimagined, When Becoming a Mother Doesn't Go as Planned. It's available everywhere books are sold. Join me next week when I speak with Karen, who started out as a single mom by choice and is now married in a blended family with a husband who has his own child. She can answer the question what it's like to raise kids alone versus what it's like married. You don't want to miss it. Bye for now. Bye for now.